Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Welcome, everybody. Welcome uh, as we continue back now, uh, second sort of hopscotch in our journey through Psalms, uh, Psalm 23. And we're continuing on now uh, with Psalm 23, Life in the Sheep Seats. And we find ourselves now at uh, the second last verse, verse 5. I think we've established pretty clearly so far uh, that uh, David, the writer's description of the sheep-shepherd relationship is pretty accurate reflection of our relationship with God. We have learned of the shepherd's provision, the shepherd's purpose, the shepherd's protection, and perhaps most comforting of all, the shepherd's presence. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We've also learned a lot about sheep, too, in the process. How in a very real sense, without a shepherd, sheep are lost. They're confused. They will indeed perish. But as began to emerge two weeks ago, uh, as we went through the valley of the shadow of death with our shepherd, we are also learning that life as a sheep has some troubles, has some trials, has some dangers. Perhaps you will remember that we noted, excuse me, a a dramatic shift in the way that David refers to the shepherd between verses 3 and verses 4. In the first three verses, all the pronouns that David uses are the third person. He makes me, he leads me, he restores me. But when he gets to the dangerous dark valley, when things kind of get personal, David uses the second uh, personal pronoun, you are with me, Your your rod, your staff comfort me. His presence is David's comfort. And now comes another shift. The first four verses portray the shepherd in a very pastoral type of scene. The shepherd and his sheep in the pasture, but here in verse 5, the scene slightly changes. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Something David drops his shepherd sheep metaphor here, and you might think so because sheep aren't known for their table manners, right? But not so fast because the shepherd's been here before. There's two levels to this, and the first is a fascinating play on the word table. Table or tableland was often used to refer to the high plateaus up in the wilderness. These were notoriously remote, hard-to-reach, hard-to-find places where there was often a little more accessible grass than on the mountainsides. Notice it says, you prepare. Before the winter snow melted, the shepherd would hike up to these tablelands in advance of the sheep and, and look those tablelands over with great care in order to prepare them for the flock to arrive later in the season. He would prepare the table for them. He would lug up a heavy load of salt and minerals and make caches of them in strategic spots all through his trek to provide for the sheep as they came along later. He would check to see if there were signs of any poisonous plants and either plan to avoid them or go about rooting those that had already started to grow because he was, you see, always looking out for the sheep and sheep can't look out for themselves. They eat whatever crops up in front of them. 
Unfortunately, the comparison to us as sheeps is painfully obvious here, isn't it? We somehow think we must try everything that crops up in front of us too. We have to taste that, sample this, take a shot of that, a dose of this, watch that. Even if we know that it could be harmful to us, we have FOMO, right? We have the fear of missing out. It turns out we're no better than cats when it comes to curiosity. Speaking of cats, the shepherd is also keeping an eye out for signs of lions and other predators. He knows exactly what to look for and thus can be prepared for the battles to come. Our great shepherd is going ahead of us all the time, preparing the way, preparing the table, anticipating every danger we will face. There's another aspect to the phrase, you prepare. It doesn't say, you went before us and you made everything completely safe. You eradicated in advance every difficulty I might ever face in my life's journey. It doesn't say that. It says, you prepared my table, and that's this idea that there's still more to come. He doesn't say, you prepared my table with cake my whole life through. No, he just went ahead. Perhaps ra per prepare rather means that he will get it ready for us, but it doesn't mean that he will make it a cakewalk for us all the way through. Because this table is not prepared in the absence of the sheep's enemies. Did you notice? No, it's prepared within their presence. They are out there watching and waiting. They're hoping for a slip-up. They're hoping for an opening. The picture here is full of drama and suspense and potential harm. Only the vigilance of the shepherd watching over his flock on the tableland in full view of the enemies can prevent a massacre. Thankfully, though, this enemy has no new tricks. He's tried them all before on the shepherd. He knows every sneaky trick, every deceit, every ambush planned by the roaring lion who seeks to devour the sheep. But just because the shepherd has gone ahead and prepared for that eventuality and made provision and safety of his sheep, his number one concern, doesn't mean that sheep won't have problems. Doesn't mean the sheep won't have trials. Doesn't mean the sheep won't have troubles. Predators can still attack. Poisonous plants can still grow up. Storms can still come. Hazards abound. At all times, we would be wise to walk a little closer to the shepherd. This is the one sure place of safety. It's the wayward sheep. It's the wanderers. It's the sheep who march to the bleat of a different drum that are picked off by the enemies in an unsuspecting moment. This life as a sheep is not without its trials and dangers. Because sheep exist in an imperfect world, they're going to suffer and they're going to get hurt by accidents, by disease, by enemies. They're going to suffer on occasion. They're going to be distracted. They're going to wander off. Isn't that not also true of us? Many of us get into difficulty beyond ourselves. Are we not also hurt by accidents and illnesses and by our enemies? Of all the dangers and hurts the Bible warns us of, perhaps the two worst and the, also perhaps the hardest to detect are the wolf in sheep's clothing and the snakes in the grass. The wolves are the one who seem on the surface to, to like you, but underneath they have an, an agenda that will eventually harm you. The snakes are, well, they're more overt. They're out to hurt you, but rely on stealth and sneakiness to get to you. 
Chances are that when someone slaps you on the back, they really want you to cough up something. Think about it. The deepest hurts you'll have in your life will come from such as these. Relationships are the greatest source of stress in our lives, but they're also the greatest source of blessing and joy. People do hurt us, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes accidentally, and yeah, sometimes on purpose. A reporter was interviewing an old man on his 100th birthday. What are you most proud of, he asked. Well, said the man, I don't have an enemy in the world. What a beautiful thought. How inspirational, said the reporter. Yep, added the centurion, outlived every last one of them. The problem is, our typical sheepish response to attacks is usually the wrong thing. Before we can look at the shepherd's response, I need to tell you five things to not do when you're attacked or when people hurt you. These things untreated mess you up. These things untreated compound the problems in your life and can lead you directly to a sheep wreck, okay? Number one, don't be a sheepy head. Don't ignore this. This is the Clint Eastwool approach to pain. Suffer and, oh, groaning is so a sheep response. Suffer in silence. Bite the bullet. Be a macho, macho ram, right? Pretend it doesn't exist. Hope it will go away. We often try to cope with pain by pretending it doesn't exist. There are several ways we do this. We're experts at this. Number one, flat out denying it. I don't have a problem. I'm not hurting. We deny how we really feel. People attack us and we say, yeah, didn't bother me. Minimizing it. It was no big deal. Oh, that was such a small, did I feel something? No. Procrastinating. Don't know anything about this. You know what, let's pick that up later. And no. We postpone doing anything about our pains, our hurts. We sheep it under the carpet, don't we? One of these days, one of these days, we'll get to it. We keep putting it off. Ignoring your pain, hear me on this, ignoring your pain never heals it. The wound you're trying to ignore right now won't get any better. People say time heals all wounds. Sometimes time just makes it worse and worse and worse. Listen to David. He writes, as I stood there in silence, not even speaking of good things, the turmoil within me grew worse. The more I thought about it, the hotter I got, igniting a fire of words. Ignoring them turns minor problems into major ones. It gets worse, it festers, the wound gets infected and spreads, and we don't, if we don't deal with them. Number two, don't be a sheep that flees. Don't run from it. This is the Barney Fife approach for all us older people. Run away, escape, retreat, run from your problems, don't face anything. David also tried this. Oh, that I had the wings of a dove. If I did, I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. That's what I'd do. I'd hurry to my place of shelter, far from the tempest and storm. This is human nature, folks. When we face difficulty, we do exactly what sheep do. We run for it. It's not by accident that all the doors in public buildings open outward, right? When people panic, they run. We try to get away. 
There are many different ways to escape these days. The internet, media, movies, television, alcohol, drugs, divorce, Disneyland, friends even. The problem is that you will still have the same problem when you return. Nothing is solved. Nothing has changed. Number three, don't, don't sheep like a log. Don't hide your pain. Some people don't run from it or ignore it. They hide it. They keep it to themselves. They don't tell anybody. They wear a mask all day long. Some are quite good at camouflaging their pain. Are you? They wear nice clothes and have pleasant smiles. But the fact is they've been hurt deeply, deeply. We play the game then called, are you okay? Is something wrong? And of course, the answer is, no. Why would you say that? No, nothing's wrong. We hate to admit it when we're wounded. We'll admit it when we're angry, but not when we're hurt. We don't like to admit that somebody got through our defenses, so we disguise it. Sticks and stones kind of talk. Some people camouflage their pain with materialism and sound, surround themselves with toys. They go shopping. Possessions never compensate for pain. When you're wounded, all the possessions in the world won't soothe that pain. David again. When I kept things to myself, I felt weak deep inside me. I moaned all day long. Hiding pain only intensifies it, only makes it worse. God wants you to be real. David wrote again, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. That just means lay it out to God. God, here it is. Here's how I feel, the good, the bad, the ugly. I'm under attack. I'm stressed. I'm frustrated. I'm overwhelmed. I'm irritated. I'm angry. I'm depressed. Whatever. Pour your heart out to God. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's healing when you're able to share. Revealing your feeling is the beginning of healing. When you share your woundedness, that's the starting process for getting over it. As long as you hold on to it and hold it in, as long as you hide it in your heart, you just can't get over it. You can't get well. You're actually holding on to it. Number four, don't have sheepless nights. Don't give in to worry. Worry in, in its base form is an attempt to control what you can't control an attempt to control the uncontrollable. You're trying to control something you can't control, so you worry about it. Worry is playing God, in a way. When you play God, it makes you more miserable because inside you know, deep down, you're not God, and you don't have the last word, and you can't control everything. Job said, to worry yourself to death with resentment would be a foolish, senseless thing to do. Whoever needs worry never solves problems. It never heals anything. All worry does is increase the size of your pain. Every time you worry about it, it's like playing a bad video in your mind on loop. It just gets bigger and bigger, and the more you worry about it, the more it gets exaggerated, the more it magnifies. Every time you rehearse it in your mind, you let it get bigger. The more you worry about something, the bigger it gets. And the bigger it gets, the more likely you are to be stricken dumb in apprehension, unable to call or cry out for help, so you just crumble then when the enemy finally does attack. Number five, don't cry the sheep's lament. Don't harbor resentment. Resentment never helps. Yet we do this when people hurt us. We think somehow that's going to relieve our resentment and tell them how much we got hurt. We become bitter, angry, cynical. 
We get all closed up. We turn to self-pity. You're only hurting yourself with your anger, the Bible says. Bitterness slays you far more than any other wound will ever do. No matter what anybody has ever done to you, there is something worse than that. It's the bitterness you create inside yourself. Bitterness is a poison that will kill you. It eats you up from the inside out. What resentment does is it perpetuates the hurt. It takes an event and it prolongs the pain. Every time you think about it and resent it, you allow the past to control your presence. Where we are resentful, it's because we think we're going to lash. We have a license now. I'm resenting this. Therefore, I have a license to lash back at those who offended me. But resentment never takes anybody else down except you. It doesn't hurt your offender. You can be so upset with him in your mind and so resentful that it keeps you preoccupied with your own pain, and they go along in their merry way. Resentment is self-defeating. It's self-defeating attitude. It doesn't work. You're only hurting yourself. you got to let it go. In one of the episodes of an old Amos and Andy, and I mean old Amos and Andy show, Amos had, had tired of Andy, his friend, always hitting him in the chest and asking, Ain't that right, Amos? Ain't that right, Amos? Ain't that right, Amos? One day, Amos has had enough. So he goes to his pal who had the nickname Kingfish. And he goes to his pal and he says, Look, King, Kingfish, and Amos shows him that he's got a whole bunch of sticks of dynamite strapped to his chest. And he says this to Kingfish, the next time Andy hits me in the chest, he's going to blow his full hand off. <laughs> Isn't that the way resentment is? It's attempting to pay back another, and we always end up blowing ourselves up. But the Lord, our shepherd, wants to prevent such calamities. He's not willing that any should be lost or perish. He wants us all to enjoy those green pastures, those quiet rests, and they will be there for us if we have the faith and the sense to stay near to him where he can protect us. In verse 5, David's view of the scene shifts for a moment from what's going on out in the field to now inside the shepherd's tent. There is still this shepherd-sheep relationship, but another dimension to the metaphor is added here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The scene changes now from the pasture to a place. In the shepherd's tent, we shift from a field to a feast. David looks at what it means to him, practically speaking, as one of the good shepherd's sheep. And he drops himself and all of us right now into this pastoral picture that he has painted. And he gives us three images that illustrate three more reasons why we need to stay close to the shepherd to keep our svelte sheep shape, right? We need to follow the shepherd's way. First of all, he tells us, the shepherd saves. The shepherd's tent in David's day was a kind of universal safe house. At the start of this series, we talked about how shepherding was viewed as a sort of bottom-of-the-barrel occupation. They were viewed, shepherds were, as holding the lowest station in society. Now, partially due to the basic idea that there was no one lower or more disdained than they were as shepherds, and equally due to the fact that someone who happened to come upon a shepherd's tent was absolutely in the middle of nowhere, every wanderer, whatever their character, whatever their credentials, whatever their past, every single one was welcomed as a guest into the shepherd's tent. 
In David's day, so remote was the tent that it was believed that anyone who actually arrived at a shepherd's tent had been brought there by God. In fact, to this day, a visitor to a shepherd's tent in the Middle East is known as a guest of God. A guest of God. The analogy, of course, is that we are all God's guests. The good shepherd welcomes us into his tent and provides us with all we need. He seats us at his table on which he has lavishly spread food gifts to be shared. It's not as though we are unknown to him. He knows exactly who we are. He knows we don't deserve the table spread before us, but instead of being shown the door, we're welcomed warmly with affirmation and supply, and he proceeds to overwhelm us with his lavish love. We sometimes lose sight of this, like we lose sight of our shepherd. It's our shepherd's nature to humble himself and to serve. That was no more evident than at the Last Supper as he gathered his disciples at the table who were looking around for the servant who was supposed to be there to wash their feet after walking through the dirty, dusty streets of Jerusalem. You think by now, one of the twelve would get the point of Jesus' teaching that the first shall be last and the last shall be first and would now grab the basin and the towel and serve the others. But no. They're still looking for the servant when Jesus now showed them the full extent of his love. The full extent of his love. Took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel. He washed them all one by one. The incarnate God of the universe down on his hands and knees, washing his followers' feet in submission and service. I love the subtlety then in John 21. It's after Easter. It's after Jesus' resurrection. It's kind of where we find ourselves today. A half dozen of the disciples have gone out fishing all night. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. This famous passage continues then with Jesus asking Peter if he loved him. Do you love me, Peter? Three separate times he asked him. And to each answer, yes that Peter gives, Jesus responds with respectively, feed my lambs, then take care of my sheep, then feed my sheep. The my in each phrase is a total affirmation of all that David writes in Psalm 23. But what we often pass quickly by is, where did the fire of burning coals and the bread and the food come from for breakfast? Jesus made it. The great shepherd was their chef. Once again, he prepared a table for them. Do you see? Our Savior is the servant catering to others, for he came not to be ministered to, but to minister to us. To us. Are you feasting at his table? The shepherd also safeguards. 
You anoint my head with oil. Anointing a person's head with oil was a token of esteem throughout the Bible, tied up in the high cost of the oils in the first place. Various exotic fragrant oils were precisely mixed together and sealed in alabaster jars. A host would show how much they valued their guest by breaking open one of these jars. It's, you can't reseal it. You break the top off and pouring it lavishly onto the heads of the guests until it ran down onto their robes, leaving a lingering and refreshing fragrance. Shepherds also put oil on the heads of sheep for two reasons, to protect and to heal. We've talked about the rod or club that shepherds used to defend their flocks against the wolves and the lions and the bears. But did you know oil was just as important? A special concern of the shepherds were small brown snakes that lived underground in the pastures. When the snakes sensed the sheep grazing, they popped their ugly heads out of the ground and bite the sheep right on the nose. The infection or, and or the venom from the bite could kill them. But shepherds have a remedy for these vicious little enemies. They walk off the entire area looking for those snake holes. And when they find one of those holes, they pour olive oil in a big circle around the entrance to the hole. And then they anoint the head and nose of each sheep with the same oil and allow them to graze. The oil prevents the slick bodies of the snakes from crawling under their holes. They actually, as much as we think they slither, they need the, they need the friction in order to slither in the first place. They come out and... They got no traction because they're on oil. And it keeps them away. And not only that, but they get that smell in their head. And then they smell it when they get near to a snake. And uh, no thanks. The sheep are utterly helpless. But the oil that the shepherd has provided protects them. And the, the snakes are now powerless. And they literally... Feast then the sheep and the lambs where? In the presence of their enemies. One of the worst enemies of sheep is something that seems insignificant. It's flies. They hate flies. They can't shake off the flies either by their hooves or their pretty much useless tails. Sometime, summertime, fly time, always for sheep. The flies get it up their nose, uh, get up their nose and lay eggs. It's going to let a little gross for a moment here. And the larvae work their way up the nasal passages into the sheep's head and burrow in. Sometime in the summer, you'll see a sheep perhaps banging its head against a rock or a tree because the flies and the larvae are driving it crazy and they can't do anything about it. Isn't it amazing that it's the little things in life that often really irritate us? Let's be honest. Isn't it something, sometimes the small, petty annoyances, the little niggling distractions, the, we call them petty peeves, the tiny tantalizing torments that the flies, that are flies in our ointment kind of, that lead us to beat our head against the wall sometimes? What shepherds do is they take olive oil and mix it with sulfur and anoint the head of the sheep, and it's like an insect repellent, and there's an almost immediate change in their behavior. Gone is the aggravation. Gone is the frenzied activity. Gone is the irritability. Gone is the restlessness. Soon the sheep start eating again and later lie down in peaceful contentment. Where? In the presence of their enemies. Anointing our heads with oil represents the shepherd saying, I'll take care of the irritations. The things that bug you, I'll take care of them. You can rest easy. 
There's also a kind of amusing uh, kind of purpose for the anointing of oil on a sheep's head. Sheep on occasion have been known to butt heads. Go figure. Now, there's no direct correlation to us here at all, is there? To prevent them injuring each other, the shepherd pours oil on their heads, and when they go to butt their heads together, instead of a solid impact, they simply slide off each other. And finally, they give up in frustration. Interestingly, we are told that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to promote and bring about unity. Puts a whole new light on the anointing of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? Maybe it's part of that sliding off each other. In a sense, he anoints us. So we slide off each other and work together for his purposes to accomplish what he wants us to accomplish instead of butting heads. Another way oil is used is as a salve, as an ointment, a healing agent. When a, shep, when a sheep has an open wound, the shepherd would use it as an ointment. It would protect them, and it was soothing. When David says, you anoint my head with oil, he's saying God is also going to soothe my wounds. It's worth noting that the oil, pour, that oil pours, right? I mean, it's just a liquid, and as such then, it also drips off the sheep's head quite quickly. What does that mean? It means the shepherd has to keep reapplying, reapplying oil. The oil just needs to be almost constantly being reapplied. Just as with the sheep, we need a continuous application of oil, the continuous anointing of the Holy Spirit to soothe and counteract the aggravation of conflicts and pain in our lives. He alone can form in us the mind of Christ. He alone can give us the attitudes of Christ. He alone makes it possible for us to live in harmony with one another, to react to aggravation and annoyances with respect and calmness, calmness instead. It's the daily anointing of the God Spirit upon us that produces joy, love, peace, contentment in our lives. It's this washing by the Spirit that allows us to focus on the things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. The, 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 in, the, the intent behind it is that be continually filled. It works with the anointing, doesn't it? Be continually filled with the Spirit. The idea is better expressed as being filled all the time. Just keep coming under the anointing. Just keep coming under it. Thirdly, the shepherd supplies. My cup overflows. In the Bible, an overflowing cup is a symbol for total satisfaction. It means I'm full. I'm, I'm full to overflow, man. I've got everything I need and then some, right? One of the major reasons we get into trouble as sheep is we take our eyes off the shepherd and we expect other sheep, other people, to meet needs way beyond their capability. To meet needs that, frankly, only the good shepherd can meet. No person, just another sheep in the flock, can give you absolute security in life. No person, no other sheep in the flock, can give you all the love that you need. No person, no other sheep in the flock, can make you completely happy. If you expect those things from some sheep, from somebody else other than the good shepherd, you're going to be disappointed and you're in danger of falling prey to the enemy. God never meant for you to have all your needs met by another sheep, another human being. A sheep has needs that only the shepherd can supply. When you expect other people to meet those needs, you're going to get resentful because they can't do it. 
They can't love you unconditionally 24-7. They can't make you secure 24-7. They can't make you happy 24-7. They can't meet all your needs. They're not God. On the other hand, our shepherd is the great shepherd, and he can and promises to meet all our needs. He never runs dry. It's abundance and redundance. He never has a bad mood. He never lets you down. If you look to him, your cup will overflow. So you might ask, overflow with what? I just made a really short list. It's not comprehensive by any means. Overflow with grace. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus, overflow to the many? With hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You never run out of hope because you know he's never going to let you down. With comfort, for just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. With confidence, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. With love, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. And finally, with joy. Ask using my name, and you will receive, and your cup of joy will overflow. Have you ever wondered when you go to somebody's house how long you're supposed to stay there and when you're supposed to leave? Or have you had someone drop in on you unexpectedly and you didn't know how to tell them to not let the door hit them on the way out? There is a custom in the Middle East that everyone who read David's poem and heard it knew, and it had to do with the filling of the cup. If you came to somebody's camp, if you were a total stranger, and in the desert, strangers basically take care of strangers, everybody's a stranger, the first thing you do is you offer them what do you think in the desert? A cup of water, right? You offer them a cup of water, a cup of wine. They drink that cup, and you refill it. They drink that cup, and you refill it again. As long as the cup kept getting refilled, it meant you were welcome to stay. If you came to somebody's camp, and after several refills, they left the cup empty, well, you knew your time was up. It was time to leave. You were no longer welcome. If the host decided he really, really liked the person and wanted them to stay for as long as they wanted, they would take the cup and fill it, not only to the rim, but right over the top so that it would overflow right onto the table. Don't forget you're in the middle of the desert here. This is perhaps the most precious commodity you've got, water. You don't waste water in the desert. Why would you fill it to overflowing so that it was on the, all over the table? When an overflowing cup was shown to a guest, it was a symbol that you can stay as long as you want. You are a treasured guest. There's more where this came from. And you know what? You're worth it. And then some. It meant you were extremely special. So the question for you today is, is your cup overflowing? Do you see how wet your table is?
Do you see how much your company with God matters to him? Do you know that the cup he has for you is overflowing right now with love and grace and mercy and joy, overflowing with hope and grace? You're a treasured child of the Most High God. You're a guest of his. It's spilling over for you right now. Can you just see how special you are to God? Your cup overflows. You are one of his sheep. You are loved.